Why are so many men afraid of equality? Do we really think we are better, more deserving, or it's our divine right to lord it over women? After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. Cheers. So, <laughs> something is definitely slightly off with our guest today. This is Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker. My co-host is Tom Astor. And I'm here. Well, what can I say about this gentleman? I met him on a panel, which we, you know, we were talking about women empowerment. He's do, he does so much, quite frankly. He's a former NFL player. He's a thought leader. He's a public speaker, consultant on gender, race, orientation, equality. Wade Davis. What's up, fellas? Yeah. How you doing, Welcome. man? Welcome. Man, I am tired. I flew in this morning from from Los Angeles, but I'm here and I'm 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 drinking. You're, you're drinking. I know it's, it's and I'm pushing it forward. I, I love it. It's really actually quite early. We don't normally record chicken instead at this hour, but it didn't really matter to you. You sort of walked in and said, "Well, it's four o'clock somewhere." Yeah, which I like that. It is it's, right. It's five. It's Friday, so it's got to be four o'clock. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know what the hell? Who knows? On Monday, I'm with Wade on this. On Monday through Thursday, it's it's five o'clock. But on Friday, it's, that's great. Yeah, it's I like that. So you didn't start drinking, you said, until just a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you're a professional athlete. So it's, <laughs> that's I, I not mean, why. No, why? What? So in in high school, you know, like all of my friends, they all drank, and the peer pressure to drink, I hate peer pressure. So mm -hmm. I was like, I'm never going to drink unless you stop asking me. Oh, so you're feisty. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is your rebellious side. That's so you my rebellious didn't side, drink yeah. because you, you didn't want to have the peer pressure. Yes. And they kept asking, kept asking. And then I turned 30 and I was like, well, screw it. I'll never drink. And then I met my, my partner who's French, you know, and then he was just like the third or fourth date. He was like, hey, this is going really well. But the fact that you don't drink, I think it's going to cause an issue long term. I was like, all right, a white wine. That was it. That was it. And it was downhill from then. Or yes. Uphill. Well, I'm I'm a red person now. I love a good Pinot Noir. Um, I like a frozen. Anything frozen is great. <laughs> well, even a Pinot Noir. <laughs> well, no, no, but like a frozen daiquiri, a frozen yeah. margar margarita, and then my my close friend uh, Jason was like, if you drink like a whiskey and Coke or like uh, something in Coke, like when you're out with your business friends, they'll think. That you're normal, but don't order a frozen daiquiri in front of any grown man. No, please. In fact, probably don't order one ever in front of anyone, <laughs> even when you're by yourself. You know, I would recommend humiliating but yourself. But they're so good. Oh, no, Today's drink is not a frozen drink. What are no. we drinking, Tom? We're drinking a Moscow Mule, which is quite interesting because it came from L.A. It was uh, um, a guy called Jack Morgan had a pub, an English pub called the Cock and Bull. In LA, he had. Of this he did. Apparently, this is absolutely true. So he had a surplus. He's full he, of shit, by the way. He, he says making, things like yeah. this all the time. He I just, just makes make, up. He makes make them up. up. Well, I'm a gay man, so when you say cock and bull, I'm kind of. You've already got him. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> right. It's now yeah. his favorite drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, a guy called John Martin just bought this company called uh, Smirnoff, and he couldn't shift it. And in 1941, vodka wasn't. It didn't exist in America. It was like whiskey and bourbon, and that was the drink. Vodka was a completely unknown spirit. He had just bought this company called Shmanoff. No one understood what vodka was. He couldn't shift any of this stuff. His friend Jack Morgan in the pub had has, was making ginger beer. If you can believe it, couldn't shift that either. Mm. And well, they both got kind together. of foul. By no, themselves. but they got together and they and they put together the Moscow Mule. And now we can't get enough of it. Cheers, okay. cheers, yes. Chin chin, chin chin. Like cheers. I said, it's four o'clock somewhere. There you yeah. go. Mm. And it's very delicious. It's actually actually it is. Yeah, it is. Mm. It's not too heavy on the ginger. Oh. And it's not too sweet, which for me, you see, I know you like a sweet cocktail, Wade, but I'm so sweet already. There's so much in there that you just <laughs> said. Yeah. Also, 
also heavy on the, also get heavy on the he's normally quite heavy on the ginger uh, um, heavy on me that's why i like him you see <laughs> everyone loves a good ginger everyone likes a good ginger yeah. I, I, and i'm equal opportunities as well that's why i give someone like him in a the job. gay world there's some uh, rumors about the ginger that makes you all very well um Desired. Let's oh, just say that. Uh, oh, oh God! Really? Well, he's got very small feet. If that means anything. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. Wade is totally... just got small socks. You know? <laughs> That's what that means. You know? It's exactly what it means. Wait, let me just take you back a second here. We, we, we know so many people know you from the NFL, and you know you, you made a big splash there. Obviously, at this point, you're openly gay. Uh-huh. Talk about it. You weren't openly gay when you were in the NFL. Hell no. Hell no. Right? And still to this point. There are, are there, are there, I'm going to ask you because I don't know the yeah. answer. Are there openly gay people in the NFL now? Openly gay? Yes, but so the term, the term uh, uh, opens maybe a, a weird one to use, right? Like public, so, then, I guess. Yeah, so right. So I still consult for the NFL, right? right? Um, and I consult on, on race and gender, I mean, on sexual orientation. You're an LGBT inclusion. Inclusion consultant for the NFL. Exactly. So what? So what it is now is Which, like. By the way, is a very weird title. I, every time I say it, I'm like, what does that mean? He's, this guy's coming. You get in. to make up shit. You know, what I mean, like when they want you, you just make it up. You know, and it sounds good, though, right? It does sound good. It's, I don't know what it sounds like exactly. It sounds like a sort of dental hygienist or something. It's like I don't know what's happening at this point. You're coming in with little small little picks, and you know. No. So 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 I'm the guy that that goes into locker rooms and talks to players coaches and owners about why it's important to create an inclusive environment sure. in the sports space. Now, so what is true now is like there are players who are open to their teammates and their coaches about their sexuality, but they just haven't told the world, which would make perfect sense because, you know, when I first told someone I was gay, I told my family and friends. Right. And I didn't go tell the media first, right? And I think that one of the challenges that the world doesn't get is that when someone invites the world in, they tell their family. And when you're on an NFL team or any sports team, your teammates are your brothers, right? And the coach is like a father figure. So you tell them first. The challenge when you're an athlete is that when you tell the world, now the media wants to invade this private space. Right. But the NFL specifically is a space that is all about keeping everything in-house. So one of the challenges is is like how do you create the – how do you make the conditions right for a player to tell the world where now the media doesn't – go from this player being an NFL player who is gay to this guy becoming a gay NFL player. Right, no, absolutely. You know, and that's a big deal just because, you know, when you're a seven-year-old kid, you're thinking about being a, a football player, not a gay one. No, of course. You know, but when the media finds out that that you're gay, you 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 your your sexual orientation becomes primary. Do you think that's not obviously right. not just in the NFL? Do you think that is one of those things where you, as soon as you announce you're gay in any sort of public job, quite frankly, that becomes That's the, all you the are. first thing you are. Yeah. As you mentioned, it's not you're an you're, you're NFL player who's gay. You are a gay NFL player. And so you're a gay whatever it might be. And that loss of identity is like dying in a way, especially for a, for someone who has been just this thing since they were seven or eight. I have a, a question for you. I mean, and I, I know it sounds ridiculous. No. But what does it mean to be openly gay? Just the, the concept, because, you know, there are, there are, things are not black and white. There are many shades of gray in between. And obviously in today's day and age, when you're describing whether someone is uh, male or female, we obviously have many different descriptions in yeah, between. Yeah. So, And that goes with sexuality as well. Yeah. It's not to say that you can't find a man attractive or you can't find a woman attractive if you're not gay or not you know, exactly. one or the other. So what does it mean? Yeah, so you, you said something that's really brilliant, right? So if you think about you two are best friends, right? You two are actually attracted to each other. 
Absolutely. I think you it's are, gorgeous. Right? And the, the, the challenges is right is that men haven't given themselves the permission to be honest about the fact right. that when you're friends with another man, you're attracted to each other. It may not be sexually attractive, yeah. right? But there is an attraction there on multiple levels. No, of course. So when you are a gay man, you're open about your attraction to men, not just from a friendship standpoint, but from a sexual stand, standpoint. So, um, Even I when you're not friends though, right? So you can have someone, like there could be a bully at school who you're attracted to them because of their power or their strength. Yeah, yeah, or their, exactly. You know, their, I guess attraction, like you said, comes in these different shapes and forms and people get, like, get confused mm -hmm. by what this means. So again, I guess, sorry, I don't mean to jump on you, That's but right. I'm really you know, trying to understand it because I, I too, kind of, I look at this, I, I work in the fashion industry. I, many of my friends are openly gay, if you like, and plenty of my friends, you would have no idea that they were gay because it's not something that they need to wear or talk yeah. about or it doesn't change the way they are. You know, they just, they get about their lives. And sometimes when I tell my friends, oh yeah, my friends, he's gay. And they're like, you know. Oh. Happens to me all the time. No, I'm yeah. sure. You know, I think the challenge is that when you tell someone that you're gay, their mind goes right to sex, right? They can't see you as a full human being. And our challenge as Americans, and I think even more globally, is to see people as full human beings. Like, yes, I'm gay, but I'm so many other things, right? So we use the language of inviting in. It's a coin that was phrased, um, that was turned by, by a man named Darnell Moore. Mm. Because when you tell someone that you're gay, you're, in, you're inviting them in to your personal life. You're actually not coming out. Like, people have always been there, like we've right. been existing. And when you use the term, like, the closet, it's a pejorative, actually. If you think about it, right? So, like, monsters live in closets or, <laughs> no, no. or smelly shoes or wire hangers, right? Not human beings. So I think that we have to be more, more thoughtful and intentional about our language and say, hey, no, this person is either more open about their, their sexuality or they've invited you into their personal life, but they haven't come out. Unless you're C.S. Lewis, of course, who then created an entire book series about going into the closet, which I found was very exciting. And I always thought, actually, why would you want to leave the closet? Because it seems like I want to go to the closet and open the door and be able to disappear into a fantasy world. What is interesting, though, is like when you tell your parents yeah. that you are gay, oftentimes they go into the proverbial closet because mm. they start to think about what did they do wrong. Right. Because it is still not not considered globally a positive thing to have a child who identifies queer. Right? What about Malaysia, who just announced that there are no gay people in Malaysia? Yeah, the tourism, Minister for Tourism. Apparently. Exactly, right? So what happens then when someone who identifies as LGBT and someone who is in power says that, right? It further entrenches their fear that they can't be open about their sexuality. So, okay. So, th I mean, we, we, we're talking about what it means to be gay and what it means to be a, a man who's gay. What does it mean, quite frankly, to be a man these days? You know, the question that of, is the question, right? Yeah. So the next question you must be asked all the time. I mean, are you are, are you man enough? And you know, man up, and all of these sorts of things. These <laughs> I expressions. hate all those words, right? So I say that men have to define manhood for themselves. The way that I define it is different from you, and different from you. The quest, the, the problem is that we're not asking young boys how do you define what it means to. A man. What type of man do you want to be in this world? That's an individual choice. But far too often, I see my father or an uncle or someone on TV or whatever, and I think that that is the only way to be a man. Or I get praised for, for being a man in one way and vilified for being a man in another way. We have to create the conditions for men, for, for boys to grow into themselves, right? Because here's, here's the truth. If, if you're a kid who is 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, or 20, and you're not seen with girls or talking about girls, right. what happens? Mm. You're called gay. 
Absolutely, sure. So you have to perform certain stereotypical types of what it means to be a man in order for people to even think of you as being that. So you actually never get to define it for yourself. And then now you're 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 put in this like some people call it the man box, right? But I just call it like it's it's a prison. Right, right? Sure, you know, and sure. for me, when it's I was a playing, of sorts. yeah, when I was playing sports, I knew the actions I had to portray in order to be considered a quote unquote man. I knew that I had to talk about girls, I had to have sex with girls, I had to go to strip clubs, I had to perform, because when you're performing other ideas of what manhood is, it is not genuine to you. You're performing. So what you find is that all of us men, oftentimes, are performing for each other or for women, for them to see us as a certain type of man. And the truth is that's exhausting. So how does a guy get out of that then? I mean, how do, we, how do you break out of that? I mean, I know certainly as myself as a young, as a kid, I was very interested in fashion design, which was certainly was considered to be very gay. Yeah. Um, and I joined this group of girls who were learning to sew, pattern cut, and do fashion design. And I was one boy and 22 girls, right? And I played for the, in the rugby team. So it's sort of, you know, it's that juxtaposition. juxtaposition. Yeah. And I remember all my teammates made up a nickname for me. They called me Niger by Nige, which is like a uh, like a fragrance, like a it's French kinda fragrance. It's kind of hot. Yeah, like Niger by Nige. I, I, can yeah. I just set this point that he made this nickname up for himself? See, that is <laughs> sorry, so I, crap. I, 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 that should either be a cologne, a, a cologne line or like a ascot line. Right, well, now it will be. Like, I, I'm be. Put it, we're throwing nice it out there, nice. people. So if you're listening, advertisers, I want my own fragrance called Niger by Nage. Yeah. But anyway, I, I got, you know, we had this nickname and I kind of embraced it. I kind of took it on, you know, I remember my father even saying to me, why are you doing this p- pattern cutting and tailoring and <laughs> sewing class? What do you, because was, color blocking is yeah. amazing. Right? Exactly. Well, you know what I said to him? I'm like, well, dad, when I become a doctor, I'm going to be the best plastic surgeon. I'm going to know how to stitch people up and I'm learning now. And he actually bought it but he needed to hear that you needed to perform i needed to perform for him yeah i was i was telling him something when ultimately i actually really enjoyed you know fashion and i enjoyed and i still do and i have done my entire life and of course i then took that career path um and have been always i guess surrounded by either gay men or powerful women and you know and actually as a model it was interesting because you really, as a male model, yeah. were sort of under the women models, and the, the women models were the ones who made all the money. So yeah. it was a, it was very interesting how, you know, for me at least, I my first experience of the workplace was working in that environment, and it did help change my. I'm own, sure it did, and, and sort of help me sort of see the world differently. Yeah. And it's one of the probably one of the best things fashion can do for people when you really think about the actual community at, at large. It's you know there's not often a lot of redeeming factors in the fashion industry. I would agree with you. Um, so one, I'm gonna be very honest. I am obsessed with fashion. You know, well, like, you're very well dressed. What who are you wearing right now? Do you uh, remember? I think this is Hickey Friedman. Well, it looks fantastic. It's a sort of blue corduroy suit. Very well, sharp. Well, come on. I was coming to see you. I just couldn't just, just show up in a sweatshirt. Well, come you and know, see the judge. Yeah. Well, yeah. Consider yourself judged and approved. I love so, it. So my partner and I, there's only one show that we both watch together. It's Project Runway. I mean, like, I'm That's obsessed a great with it. And I actually almost got invited to be a judge on there. And then, you know, they switched up the show or whatever. So now I'm pissed. I was like, come on. It'll happen. It'll happen. We'll speak to Carly Kloss about that, shall we? Okay, perfect. Um, no, but to your other question about how do men define manhood for them them, themselves the first way is that as children we have to give them stories Mm -hmm. of all types of men and all types of women because what is true is that we grow up in a society where young boys aren't given books to read about women right so we're given book after book after book after book about boys but we have to also learn that women have played an integral role in creating this this world clearly you know 
But if you think about your, your, your education, how many women did you really learn about when it came to making the world the way that it is? And I think that that changes how we think about ourselves in relation to how we think about ourselves with women. The second thing is I do this test when I go give talks at colleges or high schools, and I ask the young kids, I say, raise your hand if, if you've been told that you should love yourself, right? And every hand goes up. And then I say, keep your hand up if you've been taught how. Every hand goes down. And what you find is that our young kids have not been taught how their parents, like what is the practice to love yourself? And what that means is that we're finding our own self-esteem through the eyes of another. You can't find love that way. If I can only love myself based on how much you think I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm worth, it's too hard. And now with, with, with social media, kids want likes now. And it's so if I'm not getting likes, yeah. And it's, imp it's impossible to actually love anyone else if you don't genuinely love yourself and know how to. But kids don't know how. That, you know, that's and it's why we're scary. so good at loving each other, Tom. Because <laughs> I love myself so damn much <laughs> that I, I'm, I'm now brimming with love for everyone. You know, yeah. no, but it, no. But joking aside, you're absolutely right. So what you're, you know, ultimately, where, I think where you're going is with that is that compassion starts with yourself. Yes, but when the world tells you you're not tall enough, short enough, black enough, white enough, your nose is not this enough, blah blah blah, how can you find love if your parents haven't given you the tools? So is social media? Pulling is, is social media a reversal of, of a certain type of 100%. Imagine 20 years ago someone said to you, um, hey, take a picture of yourself and then post it for the world to see. You'd have thought that that was insanity, right? I'm Although I artists in history have painted themselves. Yeah, but that, I think that that was a little bit different. I'm not sure that it's this the is the original just, selfie. True. True, you know, right? Van Gogh painted himself without his ear. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just saying, you know, Matisse did the that, same thing. That is a fair, Renoir a fair counter. painted himself as well. I mean, again, they're not selfies. I get it. They took yeah. a lot longer to do. Yeah. But they were doing it. I mean, it's not unheard of. And we used to put, paint portraits of ourselves and hang them in our homes. Yeah, it was Royalty also cheaper, did. by the way, all those artists. It was cheaper to look in a mirror and paint yourself than hire a model into paint. So there is that as There's well. There's that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just been really, you know. <laughs> Okay, no, whatever. I it just, just shot down my entire theory. Sorry. No, so the interesting about like social media, I tweeted one day that I did not understand selfies because I don't take them. I don't get them, right? And then I got murdered and bombarded with some people saying, this, this is how I learned to love myself. And I'm like, really? How about phototherapy then? How about the fact that unless you look upon yourself, you cannot see how the world perceives you? I agree with that. But, to, but most of us take a selfie of ourselves and what do we do with that photo? Is it us or actually are we kind of like catering it to a certain audience like we're doing all these filters and we're so people blah, don't blah, blah. understand what the, the power of the selfie that it's not really a selfie it's more of a location -y. they're sort of saying yeah. look at me i'm in front of the empire state building and i know i look cute in my little outfit yes and b before i hit send i'm gonna put the filter on i'm gonna do blah 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 like we need to be perfect so let's take this conversation because i like this what, what we're saying here because we're kind of getting somewhere i think but what why is it what, what what has society got wrong with it i mean you know this if if this is the problem it seems that it's almost an impossible fix because historically it seems we've always sort of hated ourselves yeah and so is there an answer that's actually attainable i think there are multiple answers um but i think one of the largest ones is the power of books right when you read a book you realize that you're not the only one who's going through what you're going through like you realize that oh it's not just me you know who is struggling with all of these actual things so you can start to go and within these stories you find different ways to help you overcome right i think the other thing is like and this is specific to parents parents have to start having harder honest conversations with their kid. James Baldwin says, if you can't talk about everything, at some point you can't talk about anything. Mm -hmm. And kids learn shame 
via silence. So if I'm, if you're my father and I ask you about anal sex and you can't talk about it with me and you're silent about it, I learned that that is something to be ashamed of. Most people forget about talking about any kind of sex. They can't even talk about loving. They can't even exactly. hug, their, hug right. their, you know, I, I had how many friends of mine, I would see them at drop off with their, you know, their, their parents there and the mother will give them a hug. Mm -hmm. And then the father would literally shake their hand, pat them on the head or something or just wave. So what are you teaching that kid? That intimacy between two men is not okay. Right, but it's okay between a man and a and a woman. So my son is now doing this even to me at drop off. My daughter is the opposite. She is ridiculously over the top about it. As in, she gets out of the car, she blows me a kiss, she comes and gives me a kiss. She then does a dance. She's like so extrovert. Mm -hmm. My son, in the meantime, will turn the music off, sit there. I lean forward to get, and he does. He moves away. Meanwhile, he's very cuddly and kissy in the house. In private, exactly. In private. So but, what's happening when he's not at home is the question. But how do I fix that? And he knows that not that I don't like that. He knows that's not how we are. Have you talked about it? I have talked to him about it. He laughs. He's like, oh, I can't. I wouldn't do that at school. And and I and I talked to him. But that's silly. You need to. And even his sister, who's younger than him, so says, you can't shame him. No. It. So how you do can't I can't say tell it's me? silly? So, okay, I shouldn't say it's silly. You, you shouldn't okay, say it's silly. I slap my hand. You shouldn't say it's silly. I shouldn't no. do. So here's here, here, here's the the, the key mm -hmm. is that when you when you're asking your kids question, don't ask them why questions. Okay. Because why questions feel like judgment. It's a, there's an embedded judgment in a why question. So why are you wearing that jacket today? You know, but if I said, so tell me what was happening this morning that caused you to wear that jacket? I'm getting a very different answer. I'm going to be much more specific. Mm. So you have to, and you have to also model and tell your son about the times that you went through the same thing he went through and then help him understand how you made it past all of your internalized hatred around all of those those things. So at least he's now seeing models of what it's done because right now he doesn't see any boys who's hugging their father. No. He hasn't talked to, to you about it, right? So you have to almost overshare and be so hyper vulnerable that you create the conditions that vulnerability is the norm amongst men. I mean, we certainly have that open relationship and we talk a lot about this sort of stuff. And, you know, and actually he even sees, for example, Tom and I, when we see each other and a lot of our friends, actually, we embrace each other yeah. and we'll kiss each other on the cheeks and, and, and you know, two grown men. And if it's, you know, we don't think it's unusual. That's what we do. But a lot of other people in society look at us and be like, oh, are you European? You must be European to kiss each right. other on the cheeks. Or so when those like things that. happen, you should talk to them about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I, you know, I find it fascinating because you just taught me something and I feel actually now I might as well, I could go home today now because <laughs> I, I know what to say to my son and now I sort of talk to him and deal with him. But this is something which is, and, I'm, and I'm, I feel my, that I'm a sort of very open and aware individual, but it, there, it, there are these little things, these details. So there are the mundane moments are where your children are learning the most from, from you. It's not the big ones. It's the silence or those tiny moments that they're all alone when something happens that he feels shame and the shaming is by himself. And it's hard for you to always know what those moments are, right? But when you moan, but a kid's silence is what's telling you the most. When they get silent about something, it's it's when they're trying to figure out what's kind of happening in the, in the world. Because, it's, because what happens to children is that your parents hold up the world for you. You know, and then you realize that, oh, actually, dad doesn't control everything. And then you as a kid have to figure out how do I cut the world down to size that, that I can navigate. He's in the space of doing it. He's trying to figure out how to cut the world down in bite-sized phases where he can handle it. You've got to be there in lockstep with him. And, and, and you have to be hyper curious. And you've got to teach him to be a critical thinker, to right. be able to critically think about what's happening around him, to make decisions for himself, because if he doesn't, he's making them based on someone else's thoughts. Right. Yeah, going with the herd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the most critical thing that we can give our children is the ability to think critically about the world. 
How did you turn out the way you are? Because I mean, you you got a lot of great answers, and I you're, you're, I was an idiot for many years. But so what I happened? Still am. Tell me about your childhood then. What were your parents like? Uh, <laughs> my parents did. I'll tell you a story. That's my childhood. So um, I think I was always a feminist. I think I was always a kid who was curious and and looked at the world and thought it was weird. So I grew up in the church in the South, like going to church every day, hellfire and brimstone. And my mother and my grandmother were powerful women in the church. My mother was in the choir and my grandmother was a deaconess. But I remember sitting sitting in the pews and looking like there were no women in the pulpit, like preaching or like talking. The women were always in the choir. Mm -hmm. So I remember asking my mother one, one day, hey, like, why aren't you up there? Because was, I was curious, you know, and my mother looked at me and she paused and she told me to shut up, right? The reason she told me to shut up is because she knew that something was wrong, but she didn't have the language to be able to tell me what, like, what patriarchy was, you know? And in the church, it's, it's a very different thing. Also, I remember my grandfather would not let my mother wear pants. He also would not let her wear skirts below the knee. I mean, above the knee, above right? The knee, yeah. So... So as a child, I'm like, these things just don't make sense because it looked like the men had so much freedom. But my mother, who I thought was, you know, a superhero, right. was Making always- Making the food, cleaning the clothes, yeah, working, making sure everything was you know? on time. But, but this man was able to make her small. And I didn't like that. And I think that, that those were the moments that were the most um, impactful for me to, to kind of inform the work that I do now. And also the screw-ups that I've made. So at one of my first jobs, um, I called this woman Sweetie one day, trying to de-escalate her. And it was one of the stupidest things I've ever done. But I didn't really understand why calling her Sweetie was, was so problematic. And a supervisor of mine gave me my first piece of feminist literature. It was a book by Bell Hooks mm-hmm. called Feminist Theory from Margin to Center. Changed my whole life. Because I had to read this book freaking three times to get it, Right. But the third time I read it, I realized that I had never thought about the ways that women were oppressed in the in the world. Like I was moving about the world really centered on how men were, were impacted by it, right? And the book, it talks about slavery. And she talks about the ways that women didn't have it worse, but in some ways did, right? So women were also slaves. They also were raped by the slave master. They also had to carry the child of the slave master. They also would have their own child, and maybe that ch- child would be killed by the master. All this while still having to pick cotton, too. And I never thought about it from a woman's perspective because slavery was always framed via man, mm-hmm. right? And when you start to step back and go, wow, like, I learned all about the Civil War in America, all about it. But I was never taught what women were doing in the At Civil that War. time. No. And, and research says that I think it's like two-thirds of all like uh, working-age men died. So who was running the country at that running, point? Well, exactly. Who do, do we know any of their names? No, right? And I really believe that that, that it, it entrenches this idea that men are superior. I, I, I think it, can't, it, it can only do that. Right, I, I mean, I did learn a little bit, I think. I mean, I remember at school, we did learn about women during the Second World War basically running the country, you know. But again, the way we were taught, and, and there's a movement at the moment going on in, in, in back in the UK where where there's, 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 there's this big shout, big call to rewrite the way kids are taught about the British colonial past because 
we've got this sun never set on the British Empire. You know, we we were you know we colonized the thing, and God, we put took, took the railways to India. We did this. We civilized people. Yeah. We, in fact, you know, the, the backstory is just horrific. You know, the British are not this kind of tolerant, lovely, you know, kind race who, who did so much for the world. And it's okay to learn that that history because here's it's the not truth: being taught. The thing yeah. is, it's not the, the brutal past. If the you're not learning about women's history and 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 all types of history, then you're not really learning history. Right. right. Well, history is always being rewritten. It's kind of Revisionist. You know, it's the old African proverb that says, until the lion has a historian, the hunter will always be the hero, right? We're finally learning about the lion and the lioness, right? And right. It, and I think that when you do learn about that, it really changes how you think about the world. So I have this thing I do right now is I'm really thinking about how the world would look if we thought of God as a woman. Like, imagine that. No, absolutely. By I mean, the way, I've always thought God was a woman. Right? But it, but imagine if when people use the term God, they yeah, use goddess, a she yeah, pronoun. Yeah, or she, yeah, God. Yeah. But we never do that. Like, like God is a, is a man. And and I think that, that that has an impact, you know, that the most powerful being that we imagine, right, is a man. And that Jesus Christ, the photos on the, on the wall are from a, you know, a long-haired, blue-eyed white man. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that that's accidental. No, you know, for sure. Like Absolutely not. In the South, in some places, like they're actually re removing Hillary Clinton from the history books. That's not accidental that they're removing Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Like, like, like people understand, like Hillary, like, like Hitler. Well, in knew. Hungary right now, the, the prime minister, or the president rather of Hungary is rewriting history as well. You know, I think it was Hitler who, who knew this, that if you give me a child for the first seven years of their life, I have them forever. Right. And that's what we're witnessing. Like people understand that that if you get a child early, you can almost shape the way that they think going forward. Hence why being a critical thinker is so important. But hence at the same time, there obviously must be some change in that because that wasn't your upbringing. But you changed. But I think I was always curious. You were curious. So you had it in you. The nut was yeah, there. Yeah. The seed was there. And, and you, but what for you then was that moment of, it of was like that revelation? Book. It was the book, and it was also people around me. And I'm gonna use this language with intention. Who called me in when I screwed up? Who did not call me out? And there's a difference, right? So when so when someone screws up, and I come down with you on the hammer, and I want to dispose of you, I'm calling you out. But when you screw up and I call you in, that means I'm approaching you with an appreciative inquiry. Like I'm really trying to understand you are and understand your history because we all are histories. Right. So my my history as a Southerner means I am religious. It just means that like, I'm not a practicing Christian, but I at my core, I truly am. So if I do something wrong and you ask me about it and I explain it to you, you have a better way of saying, oh, I get why Wade is acting the way that he, he is now. There's a chance now that if we continue the conversation and keep talking, then we can move forward and, and find certain places of commonality. Right. But if you just 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 throw me away and dispose of of me, I'm never really learning. So I have people from Lillian Rivera to Janet Mock to to, to Laverne Cox, the people who I met when I was at this time where when my mind was ready to, mm -hmm. to be open, who called me in, who gave me books, who just challenged my thinking continuously and continuously, and I think that I was ready to to, re to receive that, and they did it with with kindness. Right, absolutely. And now living as a sort of feminist man. You know, and having that message, the feminist male message. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things where I've always fought against it myself. I, I see myself as a feminist. There's no doubt about it. But I don't like the term because I I'm so annoyed with men and masculinity <laughs> that we can't. That it isn't. You know, why isn't it? You know, masculine 
to to love and to care? Why isn't it masculine to empower? But it is. It, well, it should. Well, it should be right. Or well, it is. But we don't. We use this word feminist. We. I have to be a feminist now in order to to because that's the reality of the world. Right. Yeah. Men are not behaving that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know. That, so that's not how we. I mean, if we say we ask someone to man up, it's uh, you know really a negative connotation. Yeah. Actually, it's sort of you know telling them that they they should be more daring. They should actually have more balls. They should have yeah. more guts to do something. And you know. And versus, what if it was more ballsy and having guts to name yourself a feminist because it. Right. Yes, right. And the thing that, that why you are you get, scared? Why are men scared of women having equal opportunity? Why are they scared? Are they worried that they're going to take their job? Why? Because yeah. they're better than them. The Be- women are better than them. What are the men worried men about? Men know. Men know what we've done to women, and we're afraid that when women get power, they will turn the sword over and use it against us. But we're not a different species. I mean, it's ridiculous. But but again, when when I know how I've treated you, my fear is that you'll treat me the same. Like a hundred years ago, just on the same thing, my great grandmother. We just celebrated her hundred. She was the first woman and politician in the UK. She was actually Virginian, and she took her seat in the Nancy House of Commons. Nancy Astor. She took her seat in the House of Commons, and for the first two years, she was the only woman in that building. It was an all male dominated thing. They didn't put a ladies' loo in a toilet, you know, lavatory for two years. So she had to really, you know, make sure she. Yeah. And when she went in. Winston Churchill had been a great friend of hers before she became um, a member of parliament. And on, on becoming a member of parliament, he completely changed. I mean, he just, he, he was almost spinning. You know, he, he made it very clear that, that, you know, she wasn't welcome there. Yeah. And it was an all male thing. And she wasn't, you know, <clears throat> he didn't agree with the fact that there should be female politicians. Um, there's this great man who was later celebrated yeah. so much. Yeah. And she said to him once, you know, what, what is, what's the problem? You know, what, what, cause she was fiery Southern. She was actually from Virginia, you know, and she said, what's your problem? You know, we, we, you're so uncivilized. We, you know, we, we used to have a civilized relationship. And he said, um, he said, every time I see you and I think every time I see you in this place, it's, it's a bit like you've just walked into my bathroom and I'm standing, I've just got out of the bath and I'm standing there naked. That's what, yeah. it, feel, that's what it feels like. That's what he said to her, you know? And that's actually very revealing, isn't it? Really, yeah. in many ways. Yeah, yeah. that's well, it, how he it, felt. It goes naked. with what you just said a bit about the you know men knowing what they've done to you know suddenly the woman is actually yeah. seeing him naked, and he, that's his feeling. It, it's it's the great lie of the Me Too movement, right? Is that when men say, "I didn't know these things were happening to you," we knew because we witnessed them or we did them, and if we just read more, we would know that these things were happening. Like. It, it it was not blind to me that I wasn't the only man who called a woman sweetie, and 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 maybe I didn't know that it was so demeaning, but I watched it, I witnessed it. So let's talk about that word for a moment because it's, it's a very commonly used word, sweetie, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that I do it, have done it, and I probably shouldn't do it as much or ever, but it's never meant when it comes out of my mouth, at least certainly, to be demeaning. It's yeah. actually just a term of sort of sweetness or you know just trying to be light-hearted mm-hmm. you know hey love yeah. you know it's very english people will often say hey love hey sweetie hey honey you know all right mate and all that kind of stuff but you're right that we do need to think a little bit more about what we're it's saying context isn't it again Cam- context matters yeah. our, our prime our recent prime minister david cameron was, was castigated for doing in, in the house of commons some uh, uh, some uh, uh, female politician stood up and I can't remember her name and, and had a go at him about something. He didn't like it. And he said, calm down, dear. You know, calm exactly. Down. And, it, and, it's it's and, minimizing. Yeah, it's minimizing. And it was it's incredibly. And he, he said, well, he blamed it on some advert on television that he got it from. But I mean, calm down, dear. And that sort of put... If you would never call a man that in the same moment, then that's how you know that it, that it means something different. 
Like right. if if you and I are are having a conversation, and I might call you sweetie. Yeah, that's no. okay, right? That's okay, right? But, if, <laughs> but, but, no, but I'm if, joking but aside, but it's not funny though. That's the thing. Yeah. It really is not it is, funny. Really. It's like that's where the problem is, is that so we, and also we joke about these things. Yes. I mean, even me joking about it, that's the, an, an issue right there that, that we have to stop. We have to realize that it's over now. Because you know? sweetie is minimizing, it's silencing, it's dehumanizing. It is me trying to put you back into your place. So the right? test of whether you are or not is to, is, to, is to put it, if you could, could you say the same thing to a man at that particular moment? Exactly. If you can and you're comfortable with it, then yeah, yeah, it's good. So, Me Too movement, you just brought it up. Yeah. Obviously, this is a, you know probably the most trending the, hashtag, the, the most the important moment. movement you know <laughs> since probably Black Lives Matter. So, so what makes you say that specifically? Why is it so important? The Me Too movement of all the movements that are happening, it, it, you know, obviously I understand the issues and yeah. it's, it's it, they're reverberating through every industry, the fashion industry especially, I think, yeah. as well as entertainment. But why is this the critical mo- moment? So the way I think about movements, right, is that it's always to awaken the other. So if you think about the civil rights movement, it wasn't for black people. It was to awaken white people to say, hey, these things are happening. You're either doing them or you're complicit by letting them happen under your watch. Wake up and do something about it. The suffrage movement, women knew that they couldn't vote. It wasn't for them. It was to awaken men to go, hey, come on now. Mm -hmm. The Me Too movement is a time to awaken us to the fact that we have lived in this country and and people have been allowed to create, I mean, to do horrific acts, and no one has done anything about them, specific to certain industries like the entertainment world, right? And in this world, like on, on movie sets, there isn't an HR department, right? There, there aren't certain policies and procedures that people have to follow. Worse than that, here's your role, and you're going to be sleeping with this guy, and in order to get the role, you're probably going to have to sleep with me. Exactly, you right? Know? And what we haven't never talked about in this country is power dynamics when it comes to those who are powerful and those who are powerless, right? And we think that women have the power because we want to have sex with them or so on. But as Chimamanga and Goze said, that's bottom power, right? Like that's actually not real power. And what the Me Too movement is shifting, it's saying women have the right to name what's inappropriate and, and appropriate to, not just men. And there is a fear that we as men have that, again, that we're not going to be held accountable for things that historically we got to say that they were okay. That power shift will shift the way that we move forward as a country, right? That women actually have equal say in what's happening in our world and in our society. And they're able to, in some ways, legislate different forms of accountability, whereas it was always we as the man could say, this is how I'm held accountable. It is the reason why most men who are convicted of sexual assault and harassment, never spend a day in jail. Convicted. I didn't say accused. Right, no, of course. You know, like because men make the laws, right? If you're accused, anything can happen. Right. I mean, you, can, you can be made. Yeah. yeah. You, can, you can get any job you like, it seems. It doesn't seem to really matter. Yeah. But, there are no people who are, but there are people who are accused. There must be people who are being accused who are also potentially innocent. Is mm-hmm. that not also the case? Yeah. So there is this, I think there are men who are also somewhat terrified. Yeah. Um, uh, who you know feel like now? What do I do? How do I behave? I don't know what I, you know. What I if what I can do, what I can't. They do. do know how to behave. I mean, like like we do know, right? I know that when if I was heterosexual, if I meet a woman and I'm touching her into smaller her back, I know why I'm doing that. I know why. there's there's no question. So it happens both ways, right? So yeah. it's not just. Guys touching women on the small of their back. Exactly, it's, women it's both. touch men on the small of their back, and they also do the same thing. So there has to also be this understanding that because I feel that, and I'm, gonna, I'm just playing devil's advocate yeah, here please. to be honest with you. But 
because I really fully agree with you on 100%, but I do, from, I listen to men talk quite often and I hear this argument and there are guys who are worried or feel angry or feel scared that you know, they're losing their power right? They're losing their control. They also feel that women are getting to have to sort of do both to get to get their power and to be able to sort of still be women still be, you know, still, you know, wear their heels and be sexy. Shouldn't and they have sh- always right? been able to do that? I'm just saying though, right? I, I, not that I disagree, but yeah. there's this element of, you know, if a guy wants to be like really manly or guyish or boyish, it, it's sort of begin, beginning to starting to become frowned upon to be sort of overtly male, whatever that means, like angry or, or yeah. tough. Like the word man, it's hard to you use it as a descriptor <laughs> anymore because what does it mean? But whereas to be female, um, you know, if you can be flirtatious and it's okay, or is it? That's the question, I guess, is is it okay for women to be flirtatious back? It It's okay for both of us to be flirtatious. The difference, I think, historically is that the man was able to dictate the terms, right? Where the goalpost has moved and men are trying to figure out like how to right size themselves. You know, there was a book by a friend of mine named um, Melissa Harris Perry. It's called Sister Citizen. And she talks about how women exist in the crooked room, right? That when they walk into a room, they're always having to right size themselves based on the person who is in power. And it's always been the man. And there was a movie, uh, Fences, um, and um, Viola Davis says that. It's a great that, movie. And she says that when her husband walked into the room, like he took all the space in there. And she said, I didn't carve out space for me, right? Women are finally carving out space for themselves in a world that was historically ran by men, right? And now we're having to adjust to that, whereas we never had to. Right. Imagine when you first started dating your your, your wives. Right. Mm-hmm. And you and you used to go to bed when you wanted to, to go to bed and do X and do Y when you wanted to. Right. You started to fall in love with this person. You had to make adjustments or accommodations for this person's needs too. Right. We as men are having to go through, through that on a systemic level. Right. And systemic change is the hardest change because you've been holding on to this thing your whole life. And now it's being it feels like it's being taken away from you. It's not, you should have never had it in the first place. And that's what we're wrestling with. It's like, wow, I actually have to treat you like a human being? <gasps> really? You're not just this plaything? Because historically, we want women to be sexy, but not sexual. Right? No, absolutely. You know, like, we wanted you, a woman, to, to, to be submissive, but then also somewhat plaything and flirty. Like, we wanted to be able to dictate the terms. It's like why porn tells you everything about what a man wants in sex and nothing about what a woman wants, right? Like, that's how we wanted our world to actually be. The terms are changing, and we don't know what to do with this new world. And bring, I mean, that, I hope the, the laws for that are going to be are going to be swift and coming because they've just, they've just linked up the current crisis in India where there's a, there's a, rape crisis going on in India where that apparently is, the, the increase in the number of rapes being is, is gone up exponentially skyrocketing mm. and they're blaming it on the access to porn hardcore porn because these Indian men are seeing are watching this stuff and they want that at home yeah yeah and what's happening is that I was reading about this the other day apparently there's an absolute there's an absolute um you know um, connection between the two and and the number of sexual assaults on women in India it, it makes sense. Like it's, it's the same the thing way. here. You know, it's 
It, I actually it, saw a pornography <coughs> site the other day do an advertisement. It was a sort of social media advertisement. It was about a pornography site. It's a, it's a soft porn site, and they were actually using it as a women empowerment tool, saying that w- women are empowered by taking control of their body and being able to. And I was so horrified by this. So just the, even the word empowerment is a pejorative because it connotes that women don't have power. Mm. Do you want me to empower you, or do you say I got power? Get out of the damn way. Yeah. Right. So like mm. even our language is still viewing women through a need basis like yeah. or through a deficit lens right or should like, we give them some you know, yeah like, you. i'm going to empower you today just a little just, bit though just a little bit not too much just keep, you know? keep, it, keep it down it's just I, it was one of those most horrifying moments you know you see something like that and you're like wow this is really crooked this but is- you've never seen anything that's empowering men never you've never seen a men's empowerment group ever is that something we need no. But okay, but we talk about women empowerment. <laughs> but, but, but women don't need imp- empowerment either. So why are we, we are constantly talking about women empowerment then? Be- because we don't see women as powerful. They are, right? But what is Okay, so then what's the definition of power then? The definition of power, and this is a James Baldwin quote, is the ability to control the political destiny of others. Right? So men have always been able to control the political destiny of women, whether it's social or economic. We've been able to control that. Having power is to be able to control your own destiny, politically, socially, and economically. So when I say empower, I guess what I'm thinking about is empowering ourselves to be able to f- think freely, empowering ourselves to be able to love, empowering ourselves to, to, to be a sort of the, the better person. I mean, you know, you only live once, right? So, so you so can empower yourself, empower but yourself. you don't want me to empower you, do you? I not necessarily. I mean, right? Although I kind of feel empowered by sitting next to you and listening to you. <laughs> to be honest with you, I feel like I'm going to leave this interview and know exactly what to do. I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm I read a that. lot of books. I'm I read a lot people. of feminist literature books. A lot. But, but what I what I like the, the idea of is is if you go back to the story about my great grandmother, and Winston Churchill. Like this is the guy who toppled. You know, who, who was who's seen as a great hero in our country. Is it, actually, you know, has is weak enough to. Now you can conceive it as being a, a weak statement to sit there and say, you know, when you walk into my office, basically, that's what yeah. was, you know, yeah. it feels like you just walked into my bathroom and I'm naked. I mean, that is that that's one of the kind of weakest you could, you know. Yeah, um, it's just there's, fear. A, there's a great quote though that Nancy Astor had from, with Winston Churchill. It was one of my favourites that I learned when I was at school, and I guess he was drunk in the House of Commons and rattling on and raving on and she was a teetotaler she didn't drink at all and she was like Winston Churchill you're a disgrace and you're, no, he says you're, and you're, drunk. God, you're and she, drunk and he turned around and said to him you're ugly but at least I'll be sober in the morning so so there's a quote by a woman named um, Sarah Moore Grimke that I think explains why women don't need empowerment she says that she says all I ask no she says I ask no favor for my sex I only asked that my brother and get their feet off our necks. Mm. That's what it is, right? Yeah, she don't need yeah. to be empowered. Just don't oppress yeah. me and I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Like, I'll figure it out. You know, like that quote speaks to the fact that when we were always trying to quote unquote fix women, an empowerment group is about fixing women. Women don't need to be fixed. Okay, so there is some brainwashing going on though within women though, because I have, whenever I often, you know, write something that's about. Uh, you know, female empowerment or, you know, the girl up movement or, you know, it, it's just sort of it really just sort of about my wife or my daughter and putting them up in a pedestal or trying to, you know, really showcase what they were doing. There are women haters who actually write there and say, well, actually, we don't want this. We don't like this. And they, I see them online. I don't know whether they're male trolls or what's happening, but it is. They, they you know, could be just saying we don't need to be empowered. So the work of men 
and Michelle King says this, she, she says that our goal is to remove the barriers that women experience. They don't need to be empowered. We just got to get out of the damn way. Mm. If we get out of the way, your daughter, your wife will be okay because they're smart, they're brilliant, they're capable. Absolutely. But when you don't see them as capable, you think that you need to empower them to get over those hurdles. The hurdles are the issue, not them, right? No, for sure. So, so we've got to stop because if you think from an organizational level, right, like they, they say women need mentors, Women have to get this. Women have to get that. Women have to get this. like. What about the men? Like, what have what barriers have we put in place that would cause them to have to need all of those things? Because the men didn't need them. Because we've always thought of men as being capable and competent, so they don't need anything except for the normal things like some education and development, right? But we're thinking that women need mentors, need empowerment, need these X, Ys, and Zs, right? We have to think. Language really matters. Absolutely. I mean, clearly. language, words clearly matter. It's like the distinction between coming out and inviting in. It's a it's a real shift, mm-hmm. right? To come out means that you are not visible and that who you were was problematic. The world was problematic. Right. That's why I didn't invite the world in. And Darnell Moore's language on that is really clear. And just that shift makes makes us feel like we do have power. So really, we have to affect, it's girls, right? It starts with the girls. And boys, though. And boys. boys. No, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But yeah. as I'm, you've just recently become a Girl Up champion yes. or ambassador. Uh, whatever what we, we are, I'm, whatever you are, I'm the same. He copied but, uh, me, by the way. We, <laughs> I met him on a panel just a few months ago. <laughs> I was introduced as the Girl Up champion, ambassador, whatever they like to call us. I'm just happy to be there and, and See, support women. you modeled for you know? me. And, and then the next thing I hear is, guess what? Wade Davis is the new champion. There's a new champion in town, people. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Last but time how much time do I get to hang out with you now? No, you know, what's going to happen next time is I'm going to be invited onto your podcast called Shaken and Stirred. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll have one called well, so um, wait, wait, Ebony and Ivory. Wait, so, there you, you go. Know, wait, wait, was it you know, superstar? On the football field. I know. I wasn't a superstar. I was a scrub. I was good enough to make it, but I wasn't a superstar. I'm I'm smarter than I was talented as an athlete. So t- t- tell me about the reason why you joined Girl Up. I'm curious to know why, why you, that particular organization, because obviously you are a member of many. Yeah, and- yeah. Um, so I do believe that the work starts with young people, right? Um, so to have the opportunity to, one, learn from these young women about what the challenges are and ways that I can help to remove barriers was was important. And also similar to you, I think, is how do we engage young boys? Like, how do we make sure that they're a part of the conversation? Be- because what is true, so I just spoke at a couple of uh, boarding schools, right? What is true is that young boys want to have these conversations. Can we as adults create the conditions to do that where they don't feel judged is the question. I had, um, so I, I was speaking to, to these young kids, and I shared something really personal about my, myself because the, the, the kids were asking about sex. Mm-hmm. And, and like this one kid said, um, how do you know if you're good at it? And I was like, you don't ever unless you ask. You know, the other question, he said, well, how was your first time having sex? I was like, it's the most amazing 28 seconds of my life, you know, and they, and they were laughing, but it, that's the truth. Right. And then this other kid asked another question, and I told him a story. I said, the first time... I saw my father naked. I was like 10, right? And it was the most traumatic point of my life. I was like, I'm not that big yet. Like, am I going to? Because, like, you don't understand that you're 10, right? No, right? Of course. And these young boys are going through the exact same thing. You know, it's why we as other men, when we go to gyms, 
we check on other guys' junks because we're trying to measure ourselves up. We don't talk about the fact that we do that, but we all do. I wear very baggy pants. <laughs> no, but when, but when you're showering, you come out of the locker room, like there's there's always a I guy. I never shower at the gym. <laughs> I never. don't do that anymore either. I even own a gym and we don't have a shower in the gym. <laughs> we don't even have a shower. You cannot shower at my gym. At the Dog Pound, there is no shower. So if you wish to shower, do not become a member of the Dog Pound, by the way. Uh, We do a lot of things there. We check out each other's junk when we're in the gym, but not when we're in the shower. But see, like, how many men actually talk about these things, right? Because young boys are doing it, and they shame themselves for it. Because it is not talked about that men check each other out. Okay, so go back to Girl Up, because I'm with Girl Up, when I joined Girl Up, I literally joined in large part. I was actually at the party with Ivanka Trump, mm-hmm. who was launching Girl Up. Um, she was the, one of the very first uh, ambassadors. I know. Just imagine that. I didn't um, know that. Yes, I know. This, you just became a champion and an ambassador. Um, so, so you should have done your history first. I did. You? I thought I did. Well, check it again. Ooh. Check it twice. Um, but so she introduced me to it. <laughs> he can't. He, he's not. I'm take, sweating now. No, he's sweating. I'm sweating. His mind's going. Publicists he's not are calling. To, the, his phone is beeping. He's not listening his to you anymore. Pager is going off. Oh my God! It's you know he's, he just got disinvited to the UN today. Yeah. You know. His fragrance doesn't smell quite the same. I don't know what's going on over here. But I said to them, because it was all about, it's about girls standing up for girls. And my very first comment was, well, that's all well and good. And I absolutely get it. But there's a man in the picture. And it's called the father. It's called the brother. It's called the friend. And we need to be there standing right beside them. We, to do this, it's not just girls standing up for girls, and, and they were, and they sort of fought me for a while. But I fought them, and I said to them, "Let me be an ambassador." And I was the only male ambassador for Girl Up for years. And finally, they sort of began to kind of come around. And this was the UN, and I even took hum- umbrage with the fact that it was a, a UN women initiative, yeah. or that he for she was a women a UN women initiative. Yeah. That this isn't a women's initiative. This is a, glo- a global initiative. This is a world initiative. This is a human initiative. We together have to stand up yes. and get up. And you know, and, and the, the, even the, the term to girl up, we don't like the term man up. So we're sort of introducing the term to girl up. And I, I, and I sort of like I get it as a tongue in cheek. Yeah, yeah. But there is an element of we all have to listen to the language, as you I mentioned. I love your critical thinking skills right now. You're digging in. And, and, I, and so and I have been very specific with them about and I'm so impressed that they've brought on you to, to be a part of this mission because we need more men yeah. standing up for women, standing side by side with women, but standing up for men yeah. for what it means to be a man. Yeah. This is what it means to be a man. You know, and, and that is, I think, the, you know, the, the, the lesson we need to teach people. And, but men and women have to stand up together to do this, not one versus the other. I think, so I agree with everything that you said. I think, um, uh, let's say this, that marginalized groups, right, like women, like folks of color, like LGBTQ folks, they do need spaces, right, where they're free from the gaze or the feeling of oppression from the dominant group. Right. So I think that in the infancy, what Girl Up was doing was trying to create spaces for the young women to carve out, you know, like, how do we support and stand in solidarity with each other? And now they're shifting and and saying, okay, like now that we figured out what our needs are, like, all right, let's start to involve the other. And I think that your advocacy has pushed them toward that maybe sooner than they thought. But that's why. You know, you being a board member or a champion is so important, right, that you can push them them on it. I think now our job is to figure out how do we do this in solidarity? How do we not recenter 
men. Because oftentimes what, what happened is that you start bringing men into the fold and we recenter them because we're used to seeing men at the center of these conversations, oh. right? So that's often why people are like, oh, do we bring the men in? No, because absolutely. we as men are used to being like, hey, like, what, what about me? You know, so... That there is a tension there. Well, um, I feel that pressure quite often from the from feminist groups in general, who just you know you come in, you look like you are you are the enemy, and you the moment you walk in, everything you stand for, and you and I say, <laughs> and I'm like, God, but I'm I'm not, I'm here on your side. So if, but if that's the attitude, and I understand where it comes from. I don't feel that you can win if unless you have that love, unless yeah. you love. Mm. And, and that love means that you have to care for people that you don't like that much as well. Otherwise, no you're not going to bring them in. I agree with you. And that's, so it goes back to, I don't know how we win this war unless the feminists, this also, not all feminists, yeah. but a lot of the hardcore backbone of the people who have made this march and got them as far as they have, also teach that sort of compassion, love, forgiveness, and the ability to sort of bring people in. I mean, it's basic Christian um, you know, vows, most religions, in fact. We're all on a journey, right? And some of us are further along on it. You know, um, one of the questions I would love to ask you at some point is like, how did you get here? Right. Just because, you know, like you asked me and, and maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a conversation for another time. But the more that we can share as men, right, our journeys, the more that <clears throat> we can help others learn how do you do the work with men? Because the real challenge is getting men into a room, getting them to be honest, getting them to be vulnerable, getting them to not be so performative, right? Because I've been on panels with a, with other men, and you can feel it getting performative, even though we're talking about women's issues. Sure. You know, and you're just like, wow, like our just, our, our egos are just so fragile, right? And it's happened to to me, right? But the, well, the sports, idea is that, yeah, Sports in general. I mean, know? it's competing against one another. You're in a, you know, everyone's up against the other one. Who's got the best scores? Who's faster? Who's tougher? Who's laugh louder? Who can, you know, it's like every everything can be a competition. Who can eat dinner quickest? <laughs> yeah, you know, right? There's only one winner. It's like running a marathon. Yeah. One winner you know, and got 30, a million people pieces. running a marathon. So you've got one winner. Yeah. You've got 29, and I think that, that we don't teach kids, you know, how to, how to, how to be in community. You know, like, how do we do that? How do how do I see you as a full human being? How do I not meet you? And the first question I ask you is, where are you from? Because of your accents, right? How do I not right. focus on your difference, right? Like, the question of where are you from, in its in its most genuine form, is me trying to connect with you. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I hear your accent different. But imagine which of you two. I'm sure you ask that question all the time. And you're like, again, again? So it becomes a disconnecting question. Right, so how do I start to see? Well, I grew up with that in England because I am, you know, clearly not white, white. Yeah. Right. I may read white when I'm with people of color who look at me and say, "Okay, no, you're white." Yeah. And that's how I've always been approached by people. But when I grew up in England, yeah, I was not. So where and in you fact, were from? My nickname, and I, I told you this when we last <laughs> met, people say, "Oh, you're a nigger," and my name is Nigel, yeah. so it's actually the root of the word from black from Latin. Yeah. Um. So. I, this was this horrible word I was being called at school, and I and I was always be asked, "Where are you from?" And I would say, "Well, I'm, I'm from England, from London." They'd be like, but "Where are you from?" And exactly. I'd be like, "Oh, my mum's from Sri Lanka, if that's what you mean." But I was born here, yeah. you know. But it was only actually when I came to America that you that, realized you were black. Well, guess what? People said to me, "Oh, you're English, aren't you?" And I was like, "Yeah, I am English," and because they listened to my voice. Yeah. So this was the first time people would judge me by my voice and not by the color of my skin as much in the same way. Yeah. And that was very interesting as well. So you experienced colorism in England. You came over here and experienced a different type of, uh, you know, a distancing. So the other thing that happens in America is your accents, like all the research says that people deem you more intelligent. 
just by virtue of your accent. Thank God, otherwise I'd never have a job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything that comes out of my mouth is pretty stupid and crass. But it's so, true. But because yeah, you know? I've got an English accent, I can yeah. be a judge on a reality TV show. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't a judging panel out there that hasn't is the perfect cocktail a dash of English just to give it a little bit of common sense yeah you know now you gotta bring a former gay player on there too you know well don't, don't, trust me on my show I was the only one who wasn't gay so, <laughs> that is true I remember so, watching so it, I was the, you know certainly the minority you were always kind on the show too well thank you very much you know much. like I never felt that you were being uh, mean and dismissive just for the TV I never tried to be and I never, I never would be and I never will be and you know what to answer your question just very briefly you asked me a question a moment ago and you said maybe it's for another time but in a nutshell because it's not a long story the, the reason why I am where I am now and who I am now and, and I feel like I've always been this way similar to how you felt you were probably born a feminist because yeah. you were always asking those questions I have always hated injustice mm. period the end it doesn't matter what the scenario is if I see someone today fighting across the street I will cross the street to engage in a, f a fist fight that I know no, 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 I don't know anybody who's in the fight. Yeah. My wife has even told me, don't do that. Leave them alone. We don't know those people. I can't even help myself. I ha I'm like, if I see someone being hurt, if I see, I can't see an animal being tortured. I can't see, that's not to say that I don't understand that we don't eat meat or we don't eat. Yeah. It's, it's about the torture aspects. It's about the humiliation. It's yeah. about bullying. It's about, I can't stand it. It drives me bananas. The concept of rape is probably my worst nightmare. Yeah. You know, to, to, so I think, and I've always felt that way. So I've gone through life doing whatever I can, whenever I see an issue to stand up for people who feel that they can't stand up for themselves. And, and also never miss a joke. So it was only this morning that he was referring to me as an Aperol spritz. But <laughs> exactly. the color of my face with a little orange slice on top. <laughs> Do you think I, I, it so also... Sorry, it's not all, you no, know, no. He's, not, he's not quite as pure. No, as no, I don't think so. He, but He likes ribbing others. But do you think it also comes from the fact that when you were a kid, you did, you were made to feel like the other? Right, so there is a oh for sure. There's a proximity of like what it, of what it feels like. There was racism in my, within my own family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my brothers and sisters, we all popped out different colors. So you know, I was I'm sort of light brown. I have a brother who's much darker than me. I have a mm. sister who's a redhead with white skin. I have a, a brother who's white with brown hair. I have a brother who's blonde with white skin. And my mother used to joke that she had one black, one khaki, one red. Like she, like she had all this sort of mixture of children because she's half Sri Lankan. So yeah. she had a white side to her. So you could come out, take all the Sri Lankan and come out really Indian yeah. Sri Lankan looking. Or you could come out super white. Wow. So as there was an identity crisis within my within brothers and sisters. Wow. And my little sister, who was a complete redhead, um, all her life wanted to be a Sri Lankan. And, and I, ironically, I used to say to her, but honey, you, you know... Marianne was her name, and she passed away. She took her life in the oh, end. Wow. Um, but she, her story was one of massive identity crisis. She wanted to be Sri Lankan. She wanted to be like her mother. She wanted to be like me. I was her favorite brother. And you know, she, we were so close. And I used to say to her, but, you know, darling, when I go anywhere, people judge me, and I don't get the same yeah. because of my color of my skin. I get constantly judged. You get to slip in anywhere, yeah, and no one knows. To. But she didn't want to. Yeah. She wanted the opposite. And it eventually tore her apart. Wow. But I think that's also a large part of who I am. Too. Yeah. And so you witnessed all I that. I witnessed no, all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So you sort of fight for that inequality and justice and wanting to sort of help people who you know, feel lost or, yeah. or, or feel that they are disenfranchised. Um, and I guess that's just been my mission in life. Wow. I think that we're on the same path. You know, I think being black, 
growing up in the South, very poor, then realizing I was gay, like, and then becoming a bully, you know, I bullied the only openly gay kid in my school, you know, mm. um, be, truly because I, I wanted to be him. You know, like I wanted to exist in that level of courage. You know, as Maya Angelou says, I had a lot of bravado and no bravery. Mm. He had bravery, you mm. know, and I'm trying to move into bravery now in my life, but it's very hard, man. You know, like there are, there's so many things that are entrenched inside of you to always, you know, uh, step into fear and not to, to step into love, right? And I'm trying to always move toward the the latter, but it's really hard. It's homework. It's daily homework. Oh, it's got to no. keep doing it. Wade, you have made us laugh. You have made me almost cry. Um, I, I've gone up and down in emotions. I think this has been such a great conversation. I really I'm thank so you. I'm so honored man. to be here. Like, I'm honored to sit in conversation with you both. Like, I literally, that's why I... I changed the schedule. I was like, I will show up. You've I left us both shaken and stirred. We appreciate it, buddy. <laughs> Thanks Thank for you, coming brother. on. Thank you. Right. Thank you.